As President Trump's poll numbers continue to fall and coronavirus cases spike, the White House settles on a classic law and order strategy, ordering in armies of heavily armed federal law enforcement agents to quell the street protests over racial injustice and arrest vandals and demonstrators threatening federal property. The epicenter of this clash is Portland, Oregon, where protesters have been gathering ever since the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers last May. We'll talk to Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden about why he is determined to stop the Trump administration's moves in his city. And we'll talk to journalist Patrick Sims, who is on the ground in Portland, about what he is seeing there on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, it strikes me that this is a uh, pure case of the duality of America, the two Americas we live in. If you live in one America and you watch Fox News every night, you are seeing images of violence and vandalism in Portland and other cities played up to the hilt. This is the threat that is being conjured up on the right. And if you watch CNN or MSNBC or any of the networks, you see the images of uh, these federal agents not identified, driving around in vans that are not identified, scooping up protesters, arresting them and uh, hauling them off. It's quite a clash of visions about what we are facing in this country right now. Yeah, it's split screen America, but, you know, it's our job on skullduggery and in the mainstream media more generally to try to determine what reflects reality. Right. And um, I think the Fox News vision of um, radical uh, left wing Tifa. Yeah, Antifa, but, you know, what is Trump called? Radical uh, left-wing fascists, which is what Trump has called them, uh, is not quite a reflection of what's really going on out there, which isn't to say that there isn't an element of anarchists out there and there isn't, you know, some vandalism that that has taken place in Portland. But, you know, what Trump said was going on in Portland was like Afghanistan, that the violence is at the level of violence in a war that we have been in for like 19 years in which thousands of American soldiers have have died. And, you know, it look, this is transparently uh, political. It's Richard Nixon on steroids from 1968. He never would have even done anything like this. He certainly did capitalize on the unrest that was taking place for his own political purposes. But he was not threatening to send armies of federal agents into all across America, major American cities. But as Trump has said, only cities run by Democrats, right? right? right. Uh, if starting in Portland, but moving into Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City, liberal Democrats, who he says is to blame for the chaotic America that exists right now. 
Right. There's no there's no getting around the cynicism behind this. Look, as we speak, this comes the day after uh, Trump has uh, vowed to send uh, similar armies of agents into Chicago, not because of the protests, but because of the violence and the and the murders on the streets, which have spiked in the last few months. No question about that. But the cynicism is is so uh, transparent because, look, you know, the murders in Chicago and some other urban centers have been with us for some time. In fact, they had gone down until recently. It's only now when the president is looking for some sort of electoral strategy uh, that can bail him out of the hole he's in that he's decided he's going to send uh, federal agents into these cities to combat the violence. And I don't know whether this can work. It seems to me to be so transparent about what he's doing. And also, yeah. I like I mentioned Nixon before, and as we've pointed out on this podcast, there's a significant difference uh, between then and now, which is that Nixon was running for president the first time in 1968. Trump is, is the incumbent who's been president for almost four years. And there is certainly an argument to be made, and I think some evidence to back this up, that the spike in violence in some of these cities is related to the situation with COVID is related to the fact that because this pan, you know pandemic has gotten so out of control in this country that our economy has tanked. So it's a little bit hard for Trump to make the case that he's got to go in with federal troops or at least federal you know federal agents because these liberal Democratic mayors can't control their cities. Reasonable questions to be asked is who's really responsible for the violence that's taking place? Well, look, we've got two uh, really good guests uh, to talk about this, uh, both with a unique insight into what's going on on the ground in Portland. So let's just get right to it. Okay, we now have with us the senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, good to be with you guys. This is going to be fun. And I should point out that the senator and I do go way back several decades when he was a House member on the uh, John Dingell Investigating Committee uh, back in the day that uh, all sorts of crusading investigations were going on. And uh, Senator Wyden was a part of them. And then Congressman Wyden was a part of them. And I was covering them. So, I had a um, full head of hair and rugged good luck. <laughs> Well, you may have lost the former, but, uh, you know, you still have the latter. So, look, a lot of attention on Portland, Oregon right now and the confrontation between federal agents and the protesters. What is your best information as we sit here right now about what the situation is on the streets of Portland? What we know, and it was confirmed by Donald Trump yesterday. In fact, I was just walking into an interview and three minutes before I went on the air, he basically said, look, I uh, have focused on Portland, but now I'm going to go after Chicago and Detroit and Baltimore and New York. And I think it's real clear what he's up to, guys, and that is he's sending these paramilitary squads into us cities. He's trying to make it out like everybody in the city 
is either an anarchist or is sympathetic to the anarchists, and he's really trying to crank up a kind of us against them kind of focus, and uh, he thinks it'll be popular with right-wing media and in his base. But I just want to get a little clearer idea from you about what your information is about what's going on on the streets right now, because, you know, we have these conflicting reports about DHS. Homeland Security is saying there is uh, violence. There's an Antifa presence. There's threat to federal buildings. You have some of your elected leaders in Oregon dismissing all that, insisting these are all peaceful protests. Are both sides right here? Or do you believe that this is largely ginned up by the Trump administration and there is not a threat to federal property in your city? Well, let's focus on the facts. I mean, crime is actually down in my hometown over the last few weeks. So that is kind of the bottom line. And yes, I don't think there's any question but the fact that Donald Trump has tried, particularly using Chad Wolf, who always takes the most inflammatory rhetoric and then doubles you know, down on it in order to create a uh, fight. And let me give you an example because I think you really got to get down to specific cases. A longtime friend of mine is an ER doctor. Her name is Sharon Myron. She's a terrific person, doesn't have a violent bone in her body. She's also county commissioner as well. But we know her as the ER doc. And anytime we get together for a barbecue or something like that, everybody wants to ask her opinion about this kind of complaint or that kind, kind of complaint. A couple of nights ago, she was part of a mom's group that was downtown peacefully protesting, and one of the Trump brigade threw a tear gas canister at her and her other fellow protesters, all of whom were not engaged in anything provocative. So those are the kinds of things that we're paying attention to. And you've seen the accounts of veterans, you know, being beaten up when they just want to ask a question. And moms, last night, the moms and, and dads were basically singing lullabies about not getting shot by by Trump's crowd. It seems as if at this point, this president is in a sense acting with impunity, uh, going into the streets of Portland, having federal agents go into the streets of Portland, and now talking about doing it in Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, other democratic cities, as as he puts it. So I I guess I uh, sort of two questions. One is, what is your sense of the legal authorities that Trump has to do this? Is it clear to you that the federal government does not have jurisdiction to go into these communities, particularly when they're making the case that, you know, in Portland, for example, the U.S. courthouse is being defaced or other federal properties? And what do you do if you're a mayor in one of these cities and you don't want these this federal presence in your city? What do you do about it? I'll sort of begin at the beginning there. I do think it is unconstitutional to do what Trump has directed these paramilitary squads to do, one. Two, we've got legal action already underway that we believe will make that point. Our Attorney General, Ellen Rosenblum, has moved in that regard. Three, 
Senator Merkley and I, he's my colleague in the Oregon congressional delegation, will be on the floor of the Senate here sometime in the next few days. We are going to try to add an amendment to something called the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, in order to also rein in these um, federal uh, agencies. But there is no question that no matter what we do, Trump is going to basically kind of stonewall. It's almost like the election. Many of the people that I know are already concerned that when Trump loses the election, and I want to emphasize when, because I believe he will, they're concerned about the fact that he won't even honor a vote of the American people. So we expect that what we're going to have to do is mobilize this kind of grassroots juggernaut of peaceful protesters and really expose the wrongfulness of this conduct, especially since yesterday he said, I'm going to be taking this nationwide. It was kind of odd because I was literally walking on the show and I was asked, what do you think about the fact that he is targeting not just your city, but all these other cities? And I said, gee, based on what I heard at home, people were saying instead of targeting attacks on us, how about the Trump administration uh, put an attack out on the coronavirus because they aren't um, doing the testing we, we need. They aren't um, getting us the protective equipment we need. Clearly, minority communities have not gotten a fair shake in terms of COVID-19 services. If he's going to attack something, how about we attack the coronavirus rather than our citizens? And I think it shows his skewed sense of priorities. Senator, I want to read you from an editorial today in The Oregonian and some of what they had to say. But while state and local officials are right to demand that federal officers stand down, they also must take responsibility for allowing turmoil in downtown Portland's conflict zone to persist as long as it has, while the apocalyptic picture described by acting Secretary Wolf of DHS belongs in a novel. Four blocks in the city's core show the scars of the after-hours destruction that has followed weeks of protests. And they go on to say that all Portland needs its leaders, the city council, county leaders, Portland area state legislators, and the governor to say with a unified voice that protests that devolve into destruction have no place in our city. Do you agree with them? I have already pointed out, Mike, that our leading black leaders in the fight against systemic racism have made exactly that point we're talking about Joanna Hardesty, Ronnie Herndon. These are all names that people in my hometown are very familiar with. They actually went and had a big press conference. I gather there were some law enforcement folks there as well. And they made the exact point that you're talking about, which is they said that vandalism has no place in our um, city, one. And number two, they pointed out that vandalism hurts their movement to end systemic racism. They said these vandals have nothing to do with our effort to deal with systemic racism. And look, let me make one last point on this. There is no question that in Portland, as in all other big cities, we've got some big challenges ahead of us. We got some stuff that needs to be fixed. I spent a big chunk of last week when I was home working on various kinds of approaches to reduce tensions 
on the streets of Portland with healthcare and a variety of other kinds of approaches. So I don't take a backseat to anybody in terms of condemning violence. And I literally spent a big chunk of last week trying to advance peaceful, nonviolent approaches to reduce tensions on the streets of Portland. Was there a sense in which uh, that was succeeding at all? Because from what I read, you know, merchants and shopkeepers and people who have not been able to do business there because of the, the protesting and the violence are getting pretty frustrated with the situation. So how, what evidence is there that local authorities and leadership there have been able to kind of move beyond this cycle of protest and, vi- and violence and get onto a, a, a more productive path? I mean, do you see- As I said, I think we got big challenges to root out systemic racism. We've got to advance peaceful, nonviolent, you know, approaches. What has happened, however, is a challenging situation has been dramatically inflamed needlessly in an unconstitutional way by the Trump forces. So what's really happened in the last couple of days is the moms and the dads, and now they're bringing their children, are locking arms and they're downtown, and they're making it clear that they're interested in peaceful dialogue. Now, remember guys, Donald Trump has never been interested, ever, 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 in doing the tough, hard work to deal with big issues like rooting out systemic racism. He likes to get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, I'm a tough guy. And then he orders some paramilitary squads to go out and carry out his orders. I'm not telling you this is a piece of cake here. I just spent a lot of my time last week working on these kind of approaches that'll reduce tension in the street. But what I do know is every time I turn around, Donald Trump and his lieutenants have inflamed things even more. And it is bringing out more peaceful, nonviolent protesters. And at some point, I think with that force, we're going to kind of overwhelm everything. Senator, let me just ask one quick follow-up question. Just for the benefit of our listeners who don't know Portland, tell us a little bit about the Portland you know and why you think it has become such a flashpoint uh, for the Trump administration and for right-wing media. I mean, there is this rich tradition of protests in Portland, but the the protests there also seem to have a little more of an edge than in some uh, some of the other American cities where we've seen protests. So give us a little bit of that that context for Portland itself. Well, we, we have always been about free speech. And I think if you look at my record, I'm arguably one of the most pro-free speech, pro-First Amendment members of the United States Senate. My dad was a, a journalist. And I think free speech is particularly important to the person who doesn't have a political action committee, doesn't have a lot of power, doesn't have a cl- lot of clout. You look at Black Lives Matter, um, Me Too. Part of the reason that they've been able to get their message out is some of the legislative work that I've done with respect to the internet because they wouldn't have been able to get their message out otherwise. So I think that's our tradition. And then of course you have far right groups in the Pacific Northwest and they are always looking to try to 
seize upon any kind of issue and then try to make it look like a subset of the people that are out on the street are in effect carrying a different kind, kind of message and they are stopping these unlawful peaceful protesters. It is kind of counterintuitive because the far right are the people who are engaging in the questionable conduct that we believe is unlawful, but they're busy trying to create a tension with the peaceful protesters and in effect say the peaceful protesters are the one that's breaking that are the ones breaking the law. Senator, you you and Senator Merkley have an amendment to the uh, defense bill uh, that would require that federal officers carry both individual and agency identification on their uniforms and bar them from using unmarked vehicles during arrests. And it would also limit uh, crowd control to federal property or the immediate area unless otherwise requested by both the mayor and the governor. So just to be clear here, your objection is to the the failure of these federal agents to wear identification, have identification, and and Mike, and Mike, using Mike, unmarked vehicles. Mike, let, let's, yeah. put, let's put this into into English. The two key principles behind what we're doing are transparency and accountability. Because right now, we really don't have any idea what legal authority they're operating under. We look at the identifications, if there are any, on the uniforms we can't figure out who we're dealing with. We see the unmarked cars. And so if we put it into some simple English, what Senator Merkley and I are doing is pushing for some accountability and some transparency. So just to be clear, so if they wear identification, if they drive around in marked cars instead of unmarked cars, it would be okay under your amendment for them to do well, what they're doing of, now. Of course, there are other aspects to this. I mean, we're, we're talking about kind of a floor of oversight, transparency, and accountability. I don't think that these uh, Trump forces should be allowed to tear gas uh, an emergency room doc. A friend of mine doesn't have a violent bone in her body, and everybody goes, that's okay. Look at the video of the vet that has been everywhere. It's been seen millions of times. He asked the radical question, which I might offer up is somewhat Isakoff-like. <laughs> He asked the people, the troops on the street, what constitutional grounds, authority do you have for being out here? And then they just started clubbing him. And the picture has been seen nine million times. Now take my word for it. Well, their, their answer would be we're protecting federal property. And I can tell you, many of my constituents talk about these horrific experiences they're having with Trump's paramilitary operations quite a distance away from federal buildings. So, Senator, you talked about what's going on in Portland with federal agents being unlawful or unconstitutional. Uh, you know, there's a, a DA in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who has said that if these federal agents come into his city, 
And if they exceed the law, I think in the way that you're talking about, he will go after them, criminally charge them, and make them face Philadelphia jury. Is that something that you think that uh, ought to happen in Portland? I'm not up on what's going on in, in, in Philadelphia. What, what I know is we've got an attorney general who is pursuing this in the courts. There are two United States senators who are trying to pass a piece of federal um, legislation. And then frankly, I'm using the bully pulpit at every opportunity because I think that Donald Trump's ultimate interest here is using this politically. He wants to frame this as an us against them kind of issue. And he wants to make it look like the people who are my friends and neighbors who are peacefully protesting, that's not what Portland's all about. They're really a bunch of anarchists. And then Donald Trump is going to tell people around the country that's who makes up these cities. It's not just Portland, it's Chicago, it's Baltimore, it's Oakland. Trump named all the places yesterday. It's not Mike, I'm not giving out classified secrets here. Like, uh, <laughs> Apparently, which I'm uh, always, uh, which I'm always trying to get you to do. Uh, yeah, by the way, I know. I can say, having ha- having been Isakov's editors for like the last two de- decades, I know that you have never actually given them any classified information, and we are frustrated about that. <laughs> I, 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 I can tell, but I mean, Trump has a political agenda here, guys. I mean, right. that's ultimately what this is about. And by the way, if you're getting shellacked as of today. I'm one who, you know, doesn't take the polls all that seriously. If you're getting shellacked today, you're looking to try to find some approaches that will be a contrast. Now, I guess if you have such a horrible record on dealing with the coronavirus, which is spiking all over the country, you say to yourself, I'm not sure we can figure out how to get well there. Let's go out and tell America that the people in these cities aren't like them, don't have their values, and they're either anarchists or they're sympathetic with the anarchists. Do you think that can succeed at all? Not if, not if I have anything to say about it, and I'm, I'm spending a decent amount of time doing everything I can, whether it's legislation, I'll be on the floor of the Senate tonight, we'll procedurally try to advance our legislation in the uh, defense authorization, you know, bill, and uh, I'm I'm trying to use every tool I I have. That's why I appreciate Senator, you guys having me on. I don't know how much time you spend watching Fox News, but um, if you spend any, you'll see that hour after hour, night after night, they play up the violent aspect of the protests. And whatever video they can find, they show it over and over again. Are you at all concerned that those images could break through and work to the president's advantage? I I think, Mike, political change has always been grassroots up, not trickle down. I mean, there's no question for the far right, the distorted images that you just described, they take a toll. But the fact is, Donald Trump is still hovering around, you know, 40%. And I just tweeted, oh, I don't know, an hour ago, a picture of the peaceful protesters, huge crowd. They were singing lullabies last night, dads and moms 
and families. And it's my job as somebody who represents a really special place with a special tradition for people having an opportunity to be heard, to work to end systemic racism, to work for peaceful solutions as I did um, last week to make the streets less tense. It's my job to try to push back on some of these distorted images of my hometown that are running on far-right media. I mean, this is not rocket science. Donald Trump thinks that what he's doing plays to far-right media, plays to his political base. And for somebody who's in such tremendous political peril because he has so grotesquely mishandled the corona virus, I think he thinks this is his card. I got a question on another subject. Uh, as we were talking before, you have access to a lot of classified information because you're on the Senate Intelligence Committee. The uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Congressman Schiff, and others have written a letter expressing concern that one of your colleagues in the Senate, Senator Johnson, is being used to propagate Russian disinformation in his investigation into the Ukraine dealings of Hunter Biden. Do you share that concern? And is there anything you can tell us about what you know about what Senator Johnson and the Homeland Security Committee is doing that uh, gives rise to those concerns? What I, what I can tell you, Mike, I am concerned about what is going on in Senator Johnson's committee. Senator Peters, the ranking Democrat, and I have sent letters on this point because in the finance um, uh, committee, we see the Trump administration making thousands of pages of information available to the Republicans who run the finance committee, Chairman Grassley, and giving us essentially nothing. So you bet I'm concerned about it. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. I know you said you're going to leave it at that, but you won't. Can you just say whether you you are concerned that uh, Senator Johnson or any other Republicans on his com committee have maybe unintentionally amplified Russian disinformation as part of this? I think I'll let Senator Peters, who's the ranking Democrat over there, speak on it. But I will say that apropos of the Finance Committee, We've made requests. The Republican majority has made the, made uh, requests. They have been given thousands and thousands of pages of information to address their concerns. We have essentially gotten nothing. All right, All guys. right. Senator, Thank thanks you. a lot. We really appreciate you joining us. We hope to have you back. Let's thanks so again. much. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, joining the podcast is... Patrick Sims, Portland-based freelance journalist who happens to be working on a uh, well-timed book on authoritarianism in America. Patrick, welcome to Skullduggery. It's good to be here, Dan. All right, and I do need to disclose that uh, Sims and I have been buddies since seventh grade and um, have traveled the world together, competed as journalists, and uh, he... Uh, is a uh, he's a good friend of Yahoo News as well. So. I think on on that basis we should just go to uh, uh, seventh grade stories from Patrick. <laughs> Mike, the, that's going to be the Apollo on Kleidman. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, this is this is this would be called the mutually assured destruction uh, show. We we both have stories on each other, so 
and I can do an oppo dump as well. All right, so Sims, I talked to you yesterday. You're living in Portland. You've covered political protests there over the years. So uh, I sent you into the dangerous uh, streets of downtown Portland. Last night, what did you see? Did it look like the images on Fox News of marauding anarchists and uh, left-wing radicals tearing apart uh, civil society? What did you see? Well, uh, it looked like a explosively larger protest than has been happening in recent weeks. Thousands of people as opposed to hundreds before the federal intervention. There are black clad youths, sometimes a little frightening in their appearance, but I didn't see any violence last night other than you know throwing some firecrackers and so on. There's a lot of graffiti, but this is in a very contained area of downtown Portland, three blocks by two blocks. Um, you know, the rest of the city is just uninvolved and un unaffected by this. So it doesn't feel like the city under siege as President Trump put it recently. And he says the same about other cities, of course, that they're all being torn apart by violent mobs. Um, the characteristic scene last night was the huge presence, not, you know, black clad anarchists with their face covered, but the so-called mom wall, which is, you know, a, a brand new attempt to use probably there were a thousand women last night dressed in yellow or orange. They've adopted the yellow vest like in, we've seen in France. And they formed a line between Black Lives Matter protesters and the federal courthouse to physically shield Black Lives Matter. So you're seeing basically a confrontation between, in this case, you know, the police, federal police inside the building. They didn't come out, but it's in, a, in the previous nights, these moms who are very peaceful and typically carrying sunflowers in one hand, and they may have a helmet on and goggles against tear gas. But these are not intimidating people. These are mothers, some of them pregnant, um, nonviolent. They sing children's lullabies as they face off in front of the courthouse. So that has been a, you know, almost explosive increase in their presence of, you know, a different side of this movement, even I would say coming to dominate in terms of numbers. I would say it was, you know, the number, the percentage of people who were, you know, looked like they were ready to go fighting with their black flags and Antifa t-shirts. That was one out of 25 people or one out of 50 people at the protest. You know, there were at least as many, you'd see something, you know, Portland has a long history of being a somewhat hippie town and protesting. So you see these white bearded guys who obviously have generations of experience doing this and standing alone with a sign that just says, you know, Black Lives Matter or John Lewis Matters, you know, so this is not the kind of scene that is going to make President Trump or Ken Cuccinelli or Chad Wolf of Homeland Security feel like they're justified in cracking down. You know, when you're talking about women with sunflowers, uh, it's a little hard to oppose that with, you know, these trained anti-terrorist units from the U.S. Marshals Service coming out with uh, sniper rifles and M4 rifles. And they've actually toned it down in recent nights because it is so jarring to see this kind of confrontation emerging. I don't know that the uh, president and his team need much justification <laughs> to do what they're doing. But um, that said, you mentioned Antifa. Is there, in fact, an Antifa presence in Portland? 
You know, there is, there is a, you know, there's a group called Rose City Antifa and they have cute t-shirts and seem to be, you know, they've been in the past and previous rallies that I covered one, two, three years ago where the alt-right would march in Portland. You would see brawling, you would see fighting, you would see, uh, there have been incidents, for example, throwing bricks or, or rocks or uh, different items at the police. Somebody threw, you know, the Portland police published these photos online of things that were thrown at them, and it includes an apple. So uh, this is hardly warfare in the streets. And again, I, you know, this has always been a tiny minority presence. There is an Antifa group here. They say their ideology is anti-fascist. It's not, you know, a communist conspiracy to take over Oregon. And I think that they have been, you know, it expresses the anger. You see the, the young and sort of anarchistic people. But you'll notice also a lot of them are adopting this sort of out of solidarity dressing in black. And they're not necessarily bomb throwers or, or throwing anything. That, again, was a very small part of the vibe at the protests last night. You will hear firecrackers. It sounds a little scary. But this was a peaceful protest that I saw. But some of the protests, and I'm basing this entirely on the images that you see on television and on social media. So with that caveat, it, it does seem like there's somewhat more of an edge in Portland than there has been than in some other American cities. And you mentioned the anarchists clad in black. And there is this, this term, black block tactics, I think it is. And yes. you know, we've focused a lot on the anonymity of the federal agents, and uh, I'm not, you know, this isn't a moral equivalency thing here because there are reasons for federal agents to not be anonymous, but tell us about these black bloc tactics. They're also trying to be anonymous as well, right, and trying to confuse the police. Sure. You'll see, you know, again, it, it's deliberately anonymous so that we don't know exactly who's who are doing what. Some people are merely dressed in black and showing up out of solidarity with Black Lives Matters. Others are, you'll see small groups of young men, you know, setting up barriers or trying to pull down a fence or getting into confrontations with police. Again, this was not last night, but in previous nights of these protests, which have now, last night was night 50 by one account that I saw. So there have been many nights, uh, you know, throwing the tear gas back in the face of the police, throwing things at them. There has been violence, but, you know, the, the scale of the violence, these tactics by black people tend to be a little anarchistic in the sense that they're not very well organized and they are spontaneous and they react out of anger. You know, I'd contrast that with the number of groups that showed up who were attempting to organize in other ways. So you have, I mentioned the mom wall, but this is also create, you know, you see security groups, for example, volunteer security people trying to organize the crowd and protect the edges and prevent traffic from coming through. So it has become, over time, I think it's gone through this transition, and partly because thousands and thousands of people are flooding in now to join this protest in Portland. Uh, and they're not coming from a black bloc position. They're not coming from those tactics. So I observed a couple of years ago when the Proud Boys were downtown Portland fighting. Yeah, you would see, you know, who a the, dozen. Who, uh, just who are the Proud Boys? The Proud Boys are an alt-right group which emphasizes sort of street fighting tactics, not guns, like some right-wing groups that I have been profiling and writing about at rallies recently. But they do train specifically for street confrontations to do, as they say, defend constitutional rights to free speech and protest and so on. 
so you would see Black Bloc organizing against them and showing up and throwing things at them. And there were some pretty nasty brawls, uh, you know, with uh, non-lethal weapons, as protesters would call them, including, you know, sticks, people throwing objects. You see sometimes, again, not last night, but young men on both the right and the left of these previous protests wore special gloves that have lead weights inside the fingers that are specifically for knocking people out. So the equivalent of a modern version of brass knuckles. So you do see this element of violence is there. I just think it's become increasingly marginalized as this protest has grown more popular and attracted a different kind of crowd. What about the, the behavior of the federal agents? Um, what can you tell us about them, about what they're doing? You know, we've seen reports of them driving around in unmarked vehicles and rounding people up. How much of that have you been able to verify? And you know, just give us a sense of how menacing these agents are. Well, uh, officially, the reason the federal officers are here is to protect federal property, like the Mark Hatfield Courthouse, federal courthouse downtown, where a lot of this is occurring. So their mission is, you know, to prevent damage to these buildings. Um, and it has led to typically, you know, pretty late in the evening after peaceful protests are broken up. And last night, by 11 o'clock, most people were going home to bed. Uh, and then you see the feds come out and try to clear the streets or detain a particular person. And it has been repeatedly documented in video, there's quite a few online, that they, you know, they're using these anonymous rental vans, looks like, you know, the stereotypical suburban minivan is driving by and suddenly four guys jump out, head to toe camouflage, faces covered. They have on their tactical vests, the word police, but nothing else, no identification visible, their faces covered, goggles, gas masks, helmets, gloves, you know, you're looking at, they don't just look like soldiers, these are from the, these particular agents have been drafted in from two of the most highly trained tactical units in the federal police forces, which is the uh, Marshals, U.S. Marshals Special Operations Group, and the BORTAC, Border Tactical Unit, you know, and these are heavy weapons teams that can move in on the worst villains in America if they need to. So it's sartorially kind of surprising to see them jump out of a van, take a protester without saying a word, put her in, him or her in the van, then they drive them around the city to confuse them with their faces covered and then put them inside a, the federal courthouse itself. They tend to come back to the same building. There's this strange sort of cat and mouse game where they grab a few people and every night they are, I think, just trying to carry out that policy as expressed by Trump and his appointees of quote unquote dominating the streets. So it is meant to be intimidating. It looks intimidating and I have to say as someone who covered a lot of Latin American revolutions and uh, the history of authoritarian governments there and dictatorships, you know, the, the image of unidentified masked men in uniforms stuffing people into cars. And, you know, it reminds me of, you know, this is, we haven't reached this point yet, but it reminds me of Argentina in the 1970s or Brazil during these military years when secret agents were finding and identifying opponents and, and basically kidnapping them. And this is not quite at that point because they are 
you know, concealing their identities for stated reasons as police officers and so on. They are using charging sheets and, and working through the system, but it is very eerie to see again and again these coordinated operations by heavily equipped, you know, tactical combat teams picking up peaceful protesters in the middle of the night to not be seen again for a while. So, Pat, I mean, as you mentioned, you have covered authoritarian regimes around the world and also guerrilla insurgencies fighting against them. And you are writing a book on authoritarianism in America. So this, I take it you believe that this is a authoritarian moment in this, in this country. What, what have you seen, you know, you've told us some of what you've seen in Portland, but in, in your reporting more generally about this moment in America. Well, I started out a couple of years ago with rallies here in Portland that involved groups like that right-wing Proud Boys versus some Antifa rioters and so on. But I, in, you know, in the last six or eight months, I've been looking at the sort of conservative or right-wing version of these protests, which includes specifically the occupation of the state capitol in Lansing, Michigan, by armed protesters who repeatedly showed up, you know, in what they called Operation Gridlock to protest the lockdown measures against Corona. And you'd see, you know, the state capitol in Michigan scores, even hundreds of gunmen, heavily armed. These are come from the militia movement and are often part of this very sort of anarchic right-wing movement called the Boogaloo Boys. And that's a loose term that refers to people who are not from a traditional right-wing militia, but still very obsessed with gun rights and a kind of apocalyptic vision of America as being basically over and on the point of collapse, and they're getting ready to survive and live you know, use their guns to survive when everything else is falling apart. And it's a very dark vision of where America is at. And that's coming from right-wing elements. I also went to a militia rally in Idaho last month with about 800 people present, including contingents from three different prominent militias, the three percenters of the most famous, you know, camouflage, camouflage clad men with guns who are forming up to oppose the federal government, oppose Black Lives Matter, oppose all these things that they see as, you know, a threat to their, their version of America. So I kind of marinated in the right-wing version of these movements and these demonstrations and rallies. And I do see an authoritarian urge coming up from the ground there, where you see many of these, it's mostly men, although I have seen quite a few women, including armed, in some of these demonstrations, and they really are focused on this vision. You know, they're anti-police, interestingly enough. They have uh, struggled to come to terms on the right with the left response here, with Black Lives Matter, because traditionally a lot of these militia groups and right-wing groups were tied to white nationalist causes or traditionally you know, white majority ideas, but now you're seeing some respond to say the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis by saying, hey, we are against police. We are against the federal government. Why aren't we siding with protesters? And it's created a fascinating schism there within the right-wing movement. Hard to say how important this is, but I do see an important fracture occurring. You see it a lot in the online forums where 
some of these right-wing protesters have attempted to actually join with left-wing protests. And as somebody said, it takes Donald Trump to make uh, right-wing nationalists and left-wing anarchists you know, unite at the same demonstrations. And that has happened in Minneapolis. That has happened in well, other places. Uh, well, let me, let, me just, let me just read this from, from this morning's New York Times. Uh, this is straight out of Portland. Among others concerned by the federal crackdown was Joey Gibson, a far-right activist who has long battled with Portland's Antifa demonstrators. He said he found it somewhat frightening to see the video of one officer whacking a Navy veteran with a baton, and he worried the Trump administration was setting a precedent that would encourage other presidents to embrace a more expansive use of federal forces. It is very concerning, Mr. Gibson said. So as you point out, only Donald Trump could unite the fascists with the anti-fascists. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and that guy, Joey Gibson, is the one who started these Portland right-wing rallies here. He's a, uh, I spoke to him recently. He's, uh, you know, not the only one who's starting to ask these questions about why, you know, whose side are we on here? Why are we uh, letting federal police take over cities? I do think for most people on that right side, they're not thinking it through like that. Joey Gibson and a few others are and are wondering about the precedent being set. And I mentioned the 3% Militia, which is a big national organization, very heavily armed. One of their founders has said, this is a terrible mistake by Donald Trump because of this reason, because we are setting a precedent, because we are you know, federalizing and creating this overweening national police state, they fear. So... There's an element there where they, they're starting to, to look at the same questions on the left and the right. I don't think it's going to become a kumbaya moment where right. the militias and Black Lives Matter are marching yeah. arm in arm. Look, that's a fascinating anal analysis. And I, although I agree with you that it's, uh, we're not approaching a, uh, a united frontier of the Antifa folks and the um, Proud Boys, but, you know, you were talking about how these groups on the far right have this apocalyptic vision and dark vision of where the country is at. It strikes me that many on the left do as well, coming from a different place, that they do share the uh, belief that we are uh, close to a, um, an authoritarian moment, perhaps a revolutionary moment, or, and that these protests could get out of hand. And I'm thinking in particular of what's going to happen a few months down the road with the election, where you can see the, the, the ingredients for all sorts of conflicts over the, the counting of votes, uh, who gets uh, mail-in ballots, what happens to them after they're mailed in, disputed uh, election results. And I just wonder whether, you know, this is everything we've seen so far, just may be a warm-up to far more violent and menacing conflicts down the road. I agree, Michael. I think that's a very important point. It's very clear we are in a warm-up phase. This is a prequel to what's coming. And I do feel you see in the militia movement and on the left, these are rehearsals. These are movements coalescing, talking about the future. It's not about tonight. It's not about the one case of Portland. So there is great potential there. We are close to a, a flashpoint, uh, a single incident with, you know, shooting could affect that. I would 
in my research for my book on authoritarianism, I keep coming back, the single biggest difference on this spectrum of ideas is not one person at the rally last night had a gun. That's not what's happening in Portland or these other cities. Uh, whereas every conservative or right-wing rally that I go to is heavily armed and is built around the idea that we need these guns now to defend ourselves against an overreaching state. So, you know, the worst weapon I've seen carried by an Antifa protester in Portland was a brick. Um, and it's not the case on the right. They are armed with heavy-duty weaponry, lots of ammo. They go into the state capitol in Michigan carrying 200 rounds of ammunition. What are they expecting? What are they preparing for? Is it just a, a pose? They seem a little ridiculous sometimes with their silly outfits and dress-up play, but I find it very serious because, you know, it could be a, a shot fired from the left or from the right. It could be a police officer. It could be somebody getting killed. It yeah. could easily spark a completely different dynamic here. Well, and, and since we're talking about dark visions, um, uh, apocalyptic scenarios, uh, there is the possibility as well, if there is you know, violence around the election, if we don't have results in the days or even weeks after the election, that uh, Donald Trump decides to deploy you know, federal agents uh, to deal with whatever violence uh, exists, and that becomes a combustible part of, of the mix. So we try to be... Um, Sunny and optimistic on Skullduggery, don't we, Isakov? <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't heard that much. Yeah, no. <laughs> that for, I missed that episode. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. So did everybody else. Um, but no, you're um, you're perfect uh, for feeding the uh, paranoia of our listeners, Patrick. Uh, yeah. Mike, if I can, there are there are optimistic trends here. You know, I think there is a lesson from Portland that the rest of the country can look at. There are other things going on than, you know, people grabbing bricks. The scene at this rally reminded me most of all of Zuccotti Park during Occupy Wall Street. A lot of young people, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of speakers, a lot of support. So you see in the park in front of the federal courthouse, you know, there's an encampment which is feeding people for free. There's a clothing tents where you can get stuff. There's medical support from volunteer medics, you know, there are these, I mentioned the moms groups that's forming to provide protection for BLM. And in a sort of fun way, there's now a countervailing movement, which is the so-called dads group, which is men who show up at these rallies carrying small gasoline powered leaf blowers. And they dress up and their job is if the feds shoot tear gas, they fire up their leaf blowers and they blow the smoke back at the cops and they use the blast from their leaf blower to sort of whisk away the tear gas canisters. And, you know, there's definitely an effort of sort of clowning and trying to keep it light and keep it positive to, you know, whether it's music and so on. And it reminded me of Zuccotti Park. My fear is like Occupy Wall Street, there may be this loose coalition of people coming together, but what does it become in the end? Because Occupy Wall Street was against a lot of things, but wasn't, in my opinion, able to really build a long-term agenda or movement. It didn't have a specific plan. And I think that's what is missing here. These protests are against certain things, but what are they for? What is the agenda? What, what item is actionable here? And I don't see that yet. Good point. Yeah, it, it's, um, 
we've heard the phrase uh, defund the police, which was kind of a slogan for a while, but you know, it's not clear what that means, uh, whether there's a specific program behind it. And, um, you know, have people challenged the protesters on this point saying exactly what are you calling for? Uh, you know, the, the debate I heard last night, the thing that kept coming up was a question about, you know, keeping this focused on Black Lives Matter, even as an overwhelmingly white crowd shows up in support, even as moms and dads organizing different movements or, you know, different groups show up. There was this repeated plea, let's keep this about Black Lives Matter. Let's keep this about the vulnerability of people of color in front of the police. So there is a tension there about that more narrow and original focus, which is the reason people showed up in the first place to stand in solidarity with Black people versus, you know, a whole lot of other agendas coming in. And in my view, to be a political movement, you have to start building coalitions. You have to start incorporating other people. But this was a subject people kept sort of yelling from the microphone about. Hey, Patrick, are people wearing masks and practicing social distancing? Yes, I saw a striking comparison with these conservative and right-wing rallies I've been to. Uh, I would say at least 95% of people had a mask on, maybe 97 or 98%. Uh, I only saw a couple who didn't. And again, unlike say in Michigan or Idaho at these rallies I went to, a lot of standing far apart. So that people, you know, some push forward, particularly the young people, but I noticed that, yeah, you could, it was pretty easy to keep six feet apart from people because everybody spread out and was trying to, in most cases, maintain some of that. No surprise there that Portland is, you know, as a lefty city, fully engaged in masking. <laughs> All right. Well, fascinating reporting and great analysis. And um, as we get closer to the apocalyptic time we are worried about, uh, closer to the election, we are going to have you back. So I look forward to it, Mike. Thanks to Oregon Senator Ron Wyden and Portland-based freelance journalist and author Patrick Sims for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.